Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. In 1887, Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot observed that traumatic experiences could lead to attacks that might happen years later. Living with PTSD and past trauma, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your host this evening. Tonight's On Call with the Prairie Doc program is part of the celebration of 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. We continue this tradition this evening as we discuss PTSD and past trauma. Joining us to address that topic are Drs. Matthew Stanley and Dr. Veronica Radigan of Avera Medical Group University Psychiatry Associates, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome. Thank you so much for both of you uh, um, faring a very blustery and uh, winter-like April day to come up here in studio with us. Yeah, not quite the spring day we hoped to have, but we're very happy to be here, Jill. Thank you. Yeah, so, so tell me a little bit about uh, yourself uh, here and introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, Matt, you're no stranger to the show. Our, our guests know you well. Yeah, so I have been on a few shows, and, and uh, Jill and I have been through Physicians Academy in Avera together, so we know each other pretty well also. So I'm a psychiatrist in Sioux Falls, uh, primarily practice at the Avera Behavioral Health Campus. I'm also the Vice President for the Behavioral Health Service Line with Avera and uh, Medical Director for the uh, Avera uh, Behavioral Health Hospital. Um, and my name is Ronnie Radigan, um, also one of the psychiatrists at Avera Behavioral Health, and my primary role is one of the inpatient physicians. All right, and how long have you been with uh, inpatient with Avera? Just coming up at two years. Excellent. So, and South Dakota native? Yep, born Excellent. and raised, and uh, actually haven't left for any of my training. Um, went through USD for both undergraduate and through medical school, and then um, actually stayed in South Dakota to complete my psychiatry residency as well. So. Well, why, why leave a good place, right? I know, right? Uh, had to stay, so. Excellent. Well, we look forward to answering your questions about PTSD and its causes. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. Each night, we work to answer as many of your questions as possible, given the time we have for the episode. We do sometimes receive more questions than we can cover in the time limit. We do apologize if we do not get to your question, but we encourage you to ask early to give us the best chance to answer. And to encourage your questions earlier, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. So this is not the happiest of subjects. It's kind of a heavy thing to do, but I think it's really important that we address this. Um, you know, talking about PTSD, talking about trauma, 
I, I know a lot of people are affected by this. Uh, how many patients do you see, like an inpatient, that are, are coming in due to issues with PTSD? Um, I, unfortunately, I can't say that I probably go a day without um, talking to a patient that has a diagnosis of PTSD. Um, probably, I would say, depending on the unit, um, probably about a quarter of patients have PTSD. Wow, that many. So, and is it something that's kind of seen by itself, or does it have a lot of other um, psychiatric things that go along with it, you know, anxiety, depression? Yeah, um, honestly, with PTSD, multiple different comorbidities we see, whether that be substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, um, multiple different diagnoses. Yeah, and I would say there is the, as you said, Jill, the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. and then there's the historical trauma. So uh, as Dr. Radigan said, we see a lot of PTSD, but among those that we see, say, in our addiction facility, especially among women, you know, it's probably 60 or 70 percent that have trauma in their background. There are a number of diagnoses in which PTSD is not even uh, listed on their uh, problem sheet. But as we go through their history, they have had trauma uh, at some point, if not through multiple points in their life. And, and that's one of the sad things is, um, <clears throat> it's not like an episode of trauma makes you immune to future trauma. Uh, unfortunately, many of our patients have um, gone through this repeatedly. One of the things that I think has opened a lot of people's eyes, obviously PTSD and, and Vietnam War, and, and that was kind of a uh, I guess enlightenment for a lot of people. Uh, but also when we talk about ACEs, the childhood scores that we now look at to see childhood trauma and some of the environments that kids are raised in. And then we see, you know, throughout the lifespan, we see those impact on everything from mental health, but also in things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and things that we wouldn't necessarily have associated with a history of trauma. Um, but early in life, you know, at, at it sets a course that can be, um, you know, cause, it has ramifications throughout the entire lifespan. So it sounds like a lot of patients have this trauma that they've never identified or talked about, and so may not even carry that diagnosis, yet they're still dealing with, with issues from trauma. Yeah, and that is one of the things. So PTSD, as you know, has a very specific kind of criteria set in which we would diagnose it. Uh, it's, a, it's a disorder that, as Dr. Radigan said, often is comorbid with other things. But then trauma itself, even if you don't meet the criteria for PTSD, can create things like, uh, you know, chronic interpersonal issues, relationship issues, substance use issues. So we see it as, you know, kind of a foundational part of so many other things uh, that occur in, in our behavioral health um, treatment and, and diagnostic issues. Do you want to tell our audience kind of what are the, the criteria for a diagnosis of PTSD? What sort of symptoms are we looking for to say, yep, this is what it is? Um, honestly, that's a difficult question because it manifests so differently in every patient that I talk to. And um, one of the hard parts of even getting um, the diagnosis into the DSM was trying to develop the criteria in that it manifests with different thoughts, emotions, behaviors, um, and so differently in everybody. Uh, you know, if you go back to the DSM and just look at that, it has what's called intrusive symptoms. So a lot of these would be problems with reoccurring memories, distressful nightmares, um, 
physical and psychological responses to usually some sort of trigger, whether they're able to identify that or not. Flashbacks, um, most patients are able to identify some avoidance behaviors. Um, and once again, can be difficult because sometimes the patients aren't aware of these behaviors. Sometimes family or collateral information is needed to even be able to identify that. Um, the other two big areas for diagnoses are the there's negative thoughts and um, emotions. Um, some of those could look at like distorted thoughts, um, feelings of anger, shame, guilt. And then the other big area is uh, arousal and reactivity. So kind of a difficult when you look at it with those words, but a lot of it's like sleep disturbance, being very hypervigilant, easily startled. Um, and those are just some, there's 20 all together, but those are just some brief examples. And that startle, that arousal, is, is it is a pretty key component because you think of what creates PTSD in people and it, it's kind of that, you know, your body is hyped up, your adrenaline is flowing, you know, it's the fight or flight as we talk about. So that's overstimulated during this period of time when you're distressed and then that's what reoccurs mm -hmm. and it, it feeds on itself at times. So the more it reoccurs, the more it keeps, that pathway keeps reinforcing itself. And so that's where you see these folks, you know, we've all heard the story of the, the person who has a flashback, uh, believes they're in a dangerous situation, can become very aggressive and violent and not even aware. We talk about dissociation where you're kind of not even in this moment, you're in that moment, the past. Um, and, and so, as Dr. Radigan said, a lot of times there's not even a complete understanding of what's occurring on the patient side, which is very unusual if you think about it. Mostly we can identify our moods and our emotions. Uh, so it, it does make it more difficult and can make it dangerous, obviously. Um, there are um, more than a few um, anecdotal stories and, and very well documented stories of people being um, dangerous in the state of a dissociative episode or a, an intense recollection. But it is, as you said too, it's those uh, re-experiencing of the event in one form or another. You're having a flashback, you know, you have the intense dreams and the physiologic response that um, comes with that. And that's all involuntary, they have no control over it. Right, can't really turn it off, can't really, uh, you know, you can turn it on, you talk about triggers and things mm -hmm. and, and that's where that avoidance mm -hmm. uh, starts to become a part of your life. Um, Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, let's get to uh, some questions here. We're getting lots of good uh, caller questions. <clears throat> uh, a caller from Mobridge is wondering, how do I get re referred to a psychiatrist for their PTSD? Yeah, one of the best ways I would say would be start with your primary care physician. They will usually have a relationship with someone um, or with a health system that has uh, one. There are, um, you know, I, I think you can call uh, soon to be 988-211 is, uh, you know, that's gonna go statewide and they have a lot of information. 988's gonna be a wonderful service, I think, but uh, they're often uh, a connecting point for some people. They're certainly able to help you during crisis as well. Uh, but I think for the most part, we rely on the primary care network as, as one of the best referrals. Every county in the state of South Dakota has a uh, mental health center associated with it, so that may also be a local resource where if they don't have a psychiatrist, they may have a counselor or therapist that could help to direct you to the right level of care. Excellent. 
All right. So, uh, there another viewer's asking, can the docs discuss the Nova program that was on last night, um, and about possible treatments of PTSD with medical marijuana or hallucinogens? We were just talking about that with the students before. Yeah. <coughs> Do you want I'm to tackle that you. one? That's a no, hard one. I'm going to defer to you. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, it is very interesting. So, I, I think in in PTSD, um, just as a full disclosure, I'm not and and. I'm not an incredible fan of medical marijuana in the sense that there aren't a whole lot of studies that necessarily support, um, in, in behavioral health anyway, the specific application. I would say though, of those studies, PTSD is probably the most promising in regard to the um, uh, use of medical marijuana. So I think there is uh, some hope there. And anecdotally, you know, I've talked to veterans and others who would say, you know, it, it definitely helps them. And that's clearly their opinion. I think what's, what is hard and what's lacking, but will begin to come out more, is that kind of rigorous medical studies that, mm -hmm. you know, we are in the age of what we would all call evidence-based medicine. So there are things that we, we have believed have worked for years, uh, but we really all now require evidence to support um, our decision-making and our choice of uh, therapies and medications. So that will continue to grow. You know, the psychedelics, I think, is another very interesting Area, but I think the research is still pretty um, um, pretty early, uh, and I, you know, maybe I'm just cynical or just old. But I've been around long enough to see a lot of things kind of uh, show promise, and then as the research continues, uh, doesn't pan out. So I don't want to, um, you know, throw cold water on people's hopes because there's certainly enough there to to make us interested. I do think there's um, there is that potential benefit of. Uh, those drugs that can help you to dissociate or kind of get in a different um, state of mind so that you're, you have more clarity with uh, maybe the interventions and the suggestions. Uh, so there's, I think there's very clearly hope there and I understand I think some of the basis for how it might work. Um, I think it will be a while until uh, you'll see psychiatrists like myself or Dr. Radigan here where we're not part of a research institute probably using those medications. Mm -hmm. Uh, the VA actually does some excellent research and maybe one of the first uh, places in the area that might uh, have access to that. Yeah, and we haven't been able to do research because it's up until this point has been an illegal substance. You can't do research with a randomized controlled trial with something that's illegal. You would, you would never have an IRB board approve that. You, Correct. you would get in a lot right. of trouble yeah. for yourself, your patients. So, you know, now we might get data because right now there, we don't have data. And without data, it's hard to make good medical recommendations. Absolutely right. So, yes, excellent. Well, coping with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, can be a daunting task. To find out what causes it, how it presents, and what resources are available to help, Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt turns to a clinical psychologist at the VA hospital in Sioux Falls. Dr. Carrie Lighting says PTSD can be triggered through past experiences such as combat, physical or sexual assault, a natural disaster like a tornado, or a serious accident like a car wreck. She outlined four categories of PTSD. And that first category of symptoms are what we call kind of re-experiencing symptoms, which can include things like nightmares, uh, memories that kind of pop in out of nowhere, as well as memories that may be triggered by something that you see or hear or smell. The second kind of category 
would be kind of increased negative thoughts and feelings. So things like persistent negative emotions, like guilt, shame, or blame. The third kind of category of symptoms are what we call hyperarousal symptoms. So that can include things like difficulty sleeping, concentrating, feeling extra alert or on guard, even when you maybe know you don't have to be. And then the last kind of cluster of symptoms are avoidance, which can look many, many ways, but it could include things like avoiding talking or thinking about the event, as well as like avoiding external things like people, places, situations, smells that remind you of it. Lighting says PTSD symptoms and treatment options vary from person to person. Trauma-focused uh, psychotherapies are the most highly recommended type of treatment for PTSD per kind of practice guidelines and research. And so trauma-focused just means that the treatment focuses on the memory of the event or its meaning. And so those treatments can use different techniques to help process the traumatic experience. Some of those can involve visualizing, talking, or thinking about the traumatic event. Others can involve kind of changing unhelpful sort of beliefs about the trauma. Additionally, like medications have been shown to be helpful in treating like PTSD symptoms and can include like antidepressant medications as well as like medications for like specific symptoms such as nightmares. Lighting says 50 to 60 percent of Americans have had a traumatic event in their life. Of those people, 1 in 10 men and 2 in 10 women will develop PTSD. Even with support, getting back on your feet can be a challenge. What do you have available to you and what, what, what do you need to maybe help get you to that next piece of where you like would like to kind of get more comfortable with, whether that's using your family and friends, whether that's using an online service, whether that's using VA services here, whatever that is, right, that you might need or what you might need to plug into what you need definitely encourage people to kind of make use of those. Well, that's definitely very uh, good things to hear about the resources at the VA. Actually, a viewer called in and said uh, that they were with the military veteran and wanted to make sure that uh, other veterans knew that the VA has these programs for people struggling with mental health. Uh, said that the closest uh, location they had was St. Cloud, Minnesota, and had a wonderful experience with that program. So that's mm -hmm. that's really good. I know my husband's a military veteran. His brothers and actually sister are. His father was. I know, I know his father had some PTSD issues after coming back from Vietnam. And you know, every year they would um, learn about Military One Source, which is a website and that has a lot of resources for veterans, especially talking about mental health, PTSD, mm -hmm. you know, depression, anxiety, suicide risks, all of that, addiction. So lots of help for veterans, but our veterans aren't the only people who suffer from PTSD. It can be any age, any gender, any situation. Um, what's the youngest patient you've had to do with some PTSD? I mean, it can go back to even very young children. You know, they manifest PTSD a little bit different than adults, um, may not necessarily have the same nightmares. Adults usually have like the trauma-based nightmares, but children may not. They will just indicate having a scary dream, but it may not be consistent with that trauma. 
Um, they also do a lot with like reenacting in their play, so you can see um, some of that trauma come out in their play, but very different. I mean, I think the youngest that I can recall seeing was a six-year-old on one of the units during our training. Um, now I typically see adult patients, so not down in the, you know, working with child adolescent now as much, but um, very young age. Yeah, so no one's immune to being affected mm -hmm. by trauma. Mm -hmm. So, and is there a point where you can um, do something so the trauma doesn't turn into PTSD if we like get on top of it and start processing those feelings or? Yeah, there's, there's been some, uh, I think some good evidence that uh, early intervention is effective. There's been even some medication trials where um, try to avoid kind of that, uh, we talked about that cortisol, that kind of, um, uh, Axis turn on that that uh, adrenaline turn on. So I, there are some things if you can uh, get in early. But I think um, uh, as the VA therapist was talking about, you know, support, mm -hmm. immediate support, um, immediate um, de-escalation, debriefing, uh, all those things can be effective. So mm -hmm. awareness is probably key. And I think we've gotten much better as a country, certainly as a community. Uh, after things like tornadoes and others to, to really, uh, we unfortunately are in an era of uh, violence it seems, so after we have um, events in schools or um, neighborhoods, we often see a response where we go in and debrief and try to get to those that are struggling. You know, as the data suggests, it's not everyone, so we don't want to imply that everyone who experiences a trauma is going to develop PTSD, uh, but early intervention can um, reduce the impact, um, if not totally alleviate it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what these debriefings are like? I know uh, after we have like a code where someone, you know, they stop breathing, their heart stops in the ER, or we have a bad outcome, you know, someone, a child dies from an accident, that they'll, we'll have someone come in and try to debrief the healthcare workers or, you know, my husband's a firefighter after a fire where someone dies or someone gets hurt, they'll debrief the fire department. Um, can you talk a little bit about what goes into those debriefing sessions or when they would be helpful? Um, so with, I mean, it's kind of like you were indicating and usually these are, the debriefing I would say comes and is probably more appro appropriate for those large like natural disasters and we have so many people with training where that's available and just as you indicated kind of going through walking through it, it but it's not even just like the immediate support I would say it's even the support that comes in the weeks and the months following that that are very important um, support in, even before as well is one of the best prognosis prognostic factors. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of trauma that are, is not occurring at a large scale and that debriefing is um, not available. Mm -hmm. So when there's a group, you, you can kind of all go in it to mm -hmm. it because when you're in that situation, your memory of what happened may not be accurate. I know a lot of times with codes, they're like, oh, I couldn't get that IV in. It took too long. That's why the patient yeah. died. And, and the other person was like, no, I watched you. You got it in in 10 seconds. Yeah. Oh, no, I took too long. No, you didn't. And, and kind of that reassurance to someone else who is there and shared that experience and can share that, that emotional pain together, I think, is really therapeutic. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting example because on our, <coughs> so within the hospital, we have security cameras and we'll call a code. and. Mm -hmm. You'll talk to people afterwards as you debrief, and they said it was five minutes before this got here, and you can you can actually literally see the Thanks, countdown yeah. on the clock, and it was under 20 seconds. 
But it's that distorted time aspect and that it's that shame and blame and the fear that you're already going through. And so yes, to your point, just kind of um, emoting what you feel, discussing what happened and, and getting a real uh, validated uh, perspective on what actually happened and what your role was. Because I think we all, you know, and, and particularly I think those that are uh, maybe more uh, susceptible to the trauma experience, uh, you know, they, they quickly engage in blame and shame and, and so they're taking on a lot of negative emotion and, and really, you know, that it, we all know that when we're um, very emotional and our adrenaline is flowing, our, our judgment is distorted as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the, you know, that immediate debrief or a very uh, rapid debrief. I also do think trauma is somewhat easier to experience with a group and a support than what is, I think that was the point you were making is, you know, there is so much trauma that occurs um, behind closed doors and uh, to individuals uh, and, you know, sometimes repetitive in nature and that's the hardest for us to identify and probably creates, I think percentage-wise, the most, um, the, the longest, worst impact on someone's life is that form of trauma. Well, one caller mentioned that he was in a bad accident over 10 years ago where he was hit from behind by a semi. And he says now he drives frequently and only sometimes has issues when semis pass him, but sometimes he doesn't. So <clears throat> why is it so inconsistent? Why, why does it trigger sometimes and not others? Is there a good reason for that? Is PTSD just one of those things that is unpredictable? Well, I might, I, I'm going to guess a little bit having not talked to him, but just the way he describes it. I would. Uh, uh, my belief is there probably are aspects of uh, when the when the truck passes him that he's not consciously aware of, but subconsciously are much stronger reminders of the accident than when it they pass and they don't. So below kind of his conscious level of understanding it, there is a trigger in the way that semi passed him versus the way another one does. So the color of the cab, yeah, the like speed that. they come up, mm -hmm. the, however, it, whatever it may be, correct. So there's something in there, and he, it's just not on the level of conscious awareness, um, but his body is responding uh, and is very much reminded and triggered. Okay. So a viewer from Sioux Falls is wondering what programs or education can be implemented in schools or healthcare facilities to help prevent or recognize trauma and provide resources for those. I mean, I think we're, we're trying. Yeah, yeah. yeah we are. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that educators, in, so mentioning schools, I think there is a much, um, much more training, much more awareness of the trauma that's out there. And some of the signs, I think our, our, uh, our educators are much better trained in recognizing the signs of trauma that they see in their kids. Because it, it can be, um, you know, like you mentioned, um, anger or uh, emotional disruption or difficulty with concentration. Obviously there's the physical signs mm -hmm. and you know I mean to give uh, to give our country credit we have made um, the report of abuse to a child or an elder a mandatory thing for mm -hmm. uh, school uh, school workers, school, uh, educators as well as physicians so we've made a very concerted effort to try to make sure that we intervene more frequently I can still be subtle and difficult to find. Um, and then I, I think, you know, there are pathways, for those of you that don't know on our uh, viewership, as a mandatory reporter, 
uh, I don't have to prove it myself. I just have to have a suspicion. I then turn it over to um, uh, the Department of uh, Welfare and Child Health, and they would uh, investigate that for us. Yeah, and as long as it's reported in good faith, there's yeah. no repercussions. So it's always better right. to report, report than yeah. not to report. Mm -hmm. The system is set up to encourage you to report mm -hmm. and let them investigate rather than yeah. to hesitate. So, right. yeah, okay. absolutely. I feel an easy call to make, but one I've made. And yeah. I feel like the schools continue to add more and more resources from, you know, nurses to counselors to, I, I know that there's plenty of psychiatrists in town that even do evaluations in the school. Mm -hmm. So I feel like throughout the years that that continues to develop and that our, just like our awareness and being able to make the diagnosis sooner, um, even within the educational systems, yeah. has improved significantly. Yeah, and, and I know that it's gotten much better with schools bringing in counselors after yeah. there's been a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when I was in uh, high school, I had a classmate that died in a plane crash, a small plane crash over Thanksgiving, and they brought in counselors to talk with mm -hmm. us and kind of debrief our class yeah. because it was her and her two siblings and father that mm -hmm. all perished in this plane crash, and that was really hard. So, you know, it, it's just concerning when it hits kids at so many different ages. I'm actually an emailer talked about a 10-year-old who uh, within last week lost a classmate unexpectedly and had a friend that looks like hit by a car and is really worried about you know the mental health effects on on that child so what would you do to help protect or deal with this trauma in an age-appropriate way for a 10-year-old I mean one of the biggest things that I always recommend to families that are like uh, similar experience saying you know I know so and so with their child or they have been through this traumatic or horrific incident is um, there is no harm in just starting with um, a therapist, psychologist, and having the patient see them. Um, they're pretty good at knowing the resources to referral out if they do have concerns, but kind of talking about, you know, there's debriefing immediately, but then even after that, in helping to identify if this has had an impact on them or, um, you know, an impact on anybody else. So. Definitely. A good starting point, at least, to start there. Mm -hmm. So parents, just be reassuring that you're going to be okay. We're going to take care of you and and um, get them the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I do think with kids, a lot of it is to have that fairly candid conversation. Hey, mm -hmm. it's okay if you're hurting. It's okay. Talk mm -hmm. to me about it. And uh, to your point, yeah, get get some professional help involved mm -hmm. so that. There's experience there to recognize when there may be uh, a greater problem or a greater issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a lot. We just want to protect our kids and, and right. do what's right. Mm -hmm. So I think if you surround them with support and love and then get them to the professionals who know how to deal with this, that's probably the mm -hmm. best thing yeah. you can do as parents. And to give, I would say importantly too, to give them the tools to manage this. Um, you know, learning and developing these skills, it, it does give some resilience that they can then continue to use on throughout life. Um, one of the risk factors for PTSD in and of itself is past trauma. And so if you can learn some of those coping skills at a very young age, I mean, that's only improving if, if you're going to have any further trauma down the road. That, that is huge. All right. Well, Dan Diamond is a doctor who specializes in responding to international disasters. He has been at the heart of devastation many times and shared with us this advice with handling trauma. My buddy Bob and I both deployed to, to Haiti during the earthquake. 
and um, or just after the earthquake. We were there for the aftershock. <laughs> it was the scariest moment of my life. Um, we saw stuff that you can't unsee. And we both came home struggling with some PTSD after that one. Um, and, and again, what doesn't work is to just shove that stuff down and not want to talk about it. Uh, it's incredibly helpful. So can I be kind toward my, towards myself when I'm suffering and realize that I saw stuff I can't unsee and that stuff... I would love to tell you that I'm just tough because I'm a disaster doc. <laughs> yeah, nothing stops me. I'm tough. I can. No, that's not true. Uh, some of this stuff is horrible, um, especially you know in Haiti. The the injuries that we saw to children were incredibly horrible to witness. Uh, so can I show up with myself and say, I'm going to be kind. I want to give you space to feel this. Um, and, and am I willing to go get help is a really important thing. So I, I'm a huge believer in um, going to see some professionals if I'm struggling. Not at all ashamed to tell you that I'm seeing somebody for counseling right now. It's been a tough season. So, you know, I've got a guy I see him once a week, and he's helped me navigate through the difficult stuff. Um, I think sometimes healthcare people, especially docs, <laughs> think, well, I, don't, I could never admit that I need to go see somebody. Well, no, I'm, that's like, you know, I'm, am I going to do my own appendectomy? I don't think so. It makes more sense for me to go see somebody else that can see from over there what's going on in here because I can always see my perspective. But I want to show you something. You know what that thing is? A drive shaft. Oh, you're so close. No, it's not a drive shaft. Um, hopefully this will work for you because uh, it's got some sound to it. This is a cable making machine. And it takes all those strands and it weaves them together into one cable. And that cable is strong, but every strand matters. And every person matters, too. So PTSD is not a road that anybody should walk alone. Trauma is not a road that anybody should walk alone. What we need are some vital relationships that are built on trust, where we can have meaningful conversations and say, Ooh, I'm having a tough time right now. Can I just sit with you? Well, the winner of our drawing from tonight is Valerie from Madison, South Dakota. <laughs> and we'll go back to questions here and we'll talk a little bit more. So a caller from Madison is wondering if EMDR can be used as a treatment for PTSD. You guys, can you tell them what EMDR is, what, what those initials stand for? Yeah, so it's eye movement desensitization, I think. Any, uh, <laughs> oh, emotion. The EMDR, or emotional. Oh, yep, yeah. emotional and desensitization uh, processing, emotional and desensitization 
He uh, emotional. I don't. Yeah, I, so I know obviously we're emotional and desensitization therapy. Not technically, experts, is what it is. Yeah. But familiar. We with don't it, yeah. obviously. You don't do, do it. it. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> Who does it? It's reprocessing therapy. There's yeah. all your words. So a counselor. Yes, a psychologist. Yeah. Who is trained is who specifically. In yes. Yes. Not every counselor yes. knows how to do it. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. Yep. Yeah, and it has been proven effective, and yep. it is. It's uh, regards uh, eye movement and reprocessing, and uh, um, it is a technique, and uh, I think it's effective for trauma and PTSD. And uh, there are a few people that uh, apply it to other things, but I know, in at least in that area, there's a pretty good, um, I'd say, a uh, pretty strong volume of evidence that it's supportive. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, next viewer says, can the docs discuss the stigma often associated with PTSD, especially since it's often associated with military veterans, but not often discussed with other situations? So I know we talk a lot about it with vets, with PTSD. That's kind of the first thing that, top of mind that comes up, but other things can cause this, like car accidents, rape, abuse, assault, any of those things can lead to PTSD. And right. Yeah. yeah, and I would think if there's a stigma associated with veterans with PTSD, it's a, it's always about violence, and, and it's not. Um, I think that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about dissociative episodes and response uh, to triggers and, you know, kind of that uh, fight or flight, and, and, you know, you're reliving the experience, so you think you're in a dangerous environment um, where your life is threatened. Um, but not every vet experiences their post-traumatic stress that way, and, and there's, um, we would never imply that you know veterans with PTSD are dangerous. But I think that if there's a stigma, it's probably that. Um, you know, we just heard Dr. Diamond just describe himself as coming back from a horrific event um, with some PTSD, and uh, so I think that's the reality. It exists uh, among the entire population to varying degrees, and. Um, and I would say that, you know, although there has been uh, some degree of uh, violence, often poorly directed, um, not intended, um, but the vast majority it doesn't express itself that way. I mean, I think one of the other stigmas that I hear too is the word um, weak or weakness, um, that it's a perception of being weak to seek out help or to have the diagnosis. Um, I think that, you know, with the VA and the increase in resources, uh, that stigma definitely has improved, um, but that's taken a lot of time. Yeah, I'd say if I had a concern with the VA is that it's kind of the mentality of the warrior of the, mm -hmm. of the, that exactly what you said, I'm strong, I don't need it, I'm not gonna admit a weakness, and, and yet we know from, you know, the suicide rate and some of the, other markers of impact of the experiences and the and the mental health demands of of uh, being in the military. Um, hopefully, it is more and more acceptable uh, for those folks to ask for help, and they're they're neither immune uh, nor is it a sign of uh, weakness. Definitely. So, uh, caller says, is there any evidence that points to gastrointestinal? diseases like irritable bowel or diverticulitis being secondary to PTSD. I know we're learning more about kind of that mind-gut connection. Have you guys 
read anything about that or? Yeah, so I mean, I think Dr. Stanley, you already talked about this and what I talk to my patients every single day about is whether it be PTSD, depression or anxiety, um, that we've had this idea of classifying um, mental illness here and um, medical diagnoses here, but honestly they're one and the same and that when one is off the other one will be as well so definitely I mean any sort of digestive problem whether it be ulcerative colitis any of that if if depression anxiety PTSD worse those symptoms potentially are going to be worse because of stress uh, I mean they can exacerbate those symptoms so um, I, I would definitely say that they can worsen each other and it is interesting, so serotonin, as we know, is one of the main neurotransmitters that we affect with uh, some of the most common drugs, the Prozacs and Paxils and Lexapros and things. The other area in the body that has a lot of serotonin receptors is the gut. Oh, <laughs> and there, yeah, yeah, so um, there is definitely some uh, diathesis, some connection uh, between uh, brain and gut, um, but I think the most important <laughs> point is you know, we, we've had this um, this artificial dichotomy of brain diseases and body diseases, you know, behavioral issues and, and health. It's all one and the same. It's one body, it's the same neurochemicals, and they equally affect each other. You know, poor health will affect your mental health, mental health will affect your uh, physical health. Mm -hmm. um, they're all one. And yes, I think there's a very clear correlation between some of the irritable bowel and anxiety disorders mm -hmm. and things of that nature. Yeah, so it's not medicine from the neck up right. and medicine from the neck down. <laughs> right. It, it's the whole body and everything's affected by everything. Correct, yep. yeah. All right. Well, a Sioux Falls resident would like to, you guys to expand a little bit more about historical trauma and its relation to PTSD. It's kind of like concussions where they're cumulative and they kind of add up over time. Or is it just one bad one and and it's a problem? Or yeah, so I, you know, um, I can speak uh, from my own experience. I would say that there are folks, and, and historical trauma means different things. So I've seen. I've, I think sometimes we talk about cultural historical trauma as well, and uh, the impact that has. You know, an entire culture, an entire uh, ethnic group. Um, and I think it's very clear that that does have an ongoing impact. Um, and you know, if you can have a post-traumatic state within a community, um, I think that can exist. We don't we don't really categorize things that way. But I think if you look at it uh, with an open mind, you you see the impact of that. But I w but let me approach that a little differently. When I, when we talk about like those early childhood experiences and repetitive insults to the to the brain, to the body, uh, through trauma. So that lays down uh, a very deeply ingrained kind of physiologic response to trauma and fear and um, powerlessness. And that uh, will be very, very hard to treat over the course of your life. I mean, it's not impossible, uh, but we see person people that have just chronic ways of interacting with others and it's very hard to break that even though it's you know their their poor coping skills their poor interactive skills it's very hard to change how that works versus I think you, you think of that singular event traumatic and this isn't to minimize the impact but it's easier to work through a singular event uh, especially 
uh, a little more recent, I think you have a much better opportunity to, uh, to, to be able to emote that, get it out, talk it through, as you said, mm -hmm. kind of put it in the proper perspective. Um, you know, the memories from childhood um, are very difficult to reclassify and put in a safe place and in a safe perspective. So I think there's a very, it's a very different approach. One is probably, uh, has, one has a much better prognosis and shorter course of treatment versus the other. Okay. Well, viewers wondering, have you been seeing more PTSD in people who have been ill with COVID or had post-COVID syndrome? How has COVID affected? Yes, um, being on the inpatient side, both um, patients and then obviously those at front line um, treating patients with COVID, um, both because obviously um, from the patient's viewpoint, um, now they are in the hospital critically ill um, and probably not able to see their family. If they're well enough to be able to see their family or talk to their family, um, no means to do that with um, the restrictions in regards to visitors. And then those at the front line and working through a pandemic um, and you know having um, the mortalities to deal with every day and in something new to us, anytime something's um, new difficult to navigate so for sure I would say on the inpatient side have had more individuals um, with the COVID with COVID and PTSD okay. so I'm sure it's to say you can attest to that probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long two years but well, I think we still don't fully understand all the ramifications of a COVID infection um, mm -hmm. so and we're already starting to talk or we have been talking about the long haulers the people mm -hmm. that have symptoms that are uh, longer uh, of greater duration and to some degree different presentation than those that appear to be fully recovering. So I think this story is one that continues to unfold. What we do know though is is even if COVID doesn't make you more susceptible to mental illness, mental illness made you more susceptible to the ravages of COVID. So um, we are seeing uh, a lot of, you know, I don't know if you um, noticed that the WHO just put out a scientific brief that said worldwide the increase in depression and anxiety is up 25% uh, post-pandemic if we're truly post. Um, so that just speaks to the fact that we are in the midst of, a, you know, an ongoing uh, epidemic, pandemic of behavioral health. So how do you treat PTSD? We've talked a lot about what it is, who has it, why they get it. How do you do things about it? We talked about some counseling techniques. What do you as a psychiatrist do? Um, so yeah, counseling, EMDR as we discussed is a big one. Um, the first so that even more people know about is CBT. Um, it's first line indicated for PTSD on um, more what we would do where our roles come in is medication management. Uh, Dr. Stanley mentioned SSRIs are first line, but there are also a variety of other medications that are utilized as well, whether that be, you know, targeting, and when I look at it, it's, it's not necessarily a diagnosis, but really looking at what symptoms, because as I referenced earlier, um, PTSD is manifested um, 
very differently in everybody and so it's really more looking at like a symptom based and what medications would be best for that patient. Yeah, I've always used the analogy, it's like treating the flu a little bit. I can't make the flu go away, mm -hmm. but I treat the symptom that is creating the distress. Yeah, so excellent. Well, there's a lot that we were able to unpack here tonight. This was a lot of things to talk about and a lot, not, not the happiest of subjects, but I think a very important one that we kind of destigmatize, that we make it okay to talk about and people to ask for help and, and make sure that they talk with their doctors, talk with their mental health providers, talk with their family members, and, and try to support you know, as best we can to get people through these very difficult situations. So. All right, well, our winner from our drawing tonight is Valerie from Madison, South Dakota. Thank you, Valerie, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. We live in a busy, noisy, and pressure-laden world. Being able to deal with that environment is not easy. Coping with stress, anxiety, and depression tonight on call with the Prairie Doc. Life is often very difficult. Every individual will confront stressors in different ways and sometimes we just need help. Well, that does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, was first listed as a medical diagnosis in 1980. However, it has been recognized and called by many different names throughout history. The first recorded description of PTSD is in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which dates back to 2100 BC. And in the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer wrote about the Trojan War soldiers exhibiting the symptoms of PTSD. Shakespeare described a character in King Henry IV who suffered from post-traumatic nightmares. During the Civil War, the terms irritable heart and soldier's heart were used to describe PTSD symptoms. In World War I, it was called combat stress or shell shock. In World War II, it became battle fatigue and combat exhaustion. PTSD is not limited to soldiers as the term concentration camp survivor survivor syndrome, battered child syndrome, and rape trauma syndrome were all recognized as conditions in the aftermath of World War II. PTSD is a mental health condition resulting from experiencing trauma firsthand or from witnessing others undergoing a severely traumatic event. It can also be a result from repeated exposure to distressing details of an event. For example, many firefighters and other rescue personnel who searched for survivors after the 9-11 attacks suffered from PTSD. The traumatic experience can lead to flashbacks or nightmares, which can progress to physical reactions such as rapid heart rate or shaking when reminded of an event. Individuals with PTSD will often avoid any person, place, or activity or object that could trigger memories of the event. As a result, they may feel detached from others or have persistent negative thoughts about themselves or others. They may have difficulty experiencing positive emotions like joy or happiness. Another common symptom of PTSD is hypervigilance and always feeling 
on guard. This in turn can cause problems such as excessive sleeping, irritability, aggressive behaviors, heightened startle response, or difficulty concentrating. If these symptoms last more than one month and interfere with multiple areas of a person's life, then they meet the criteria for the diagnosis of PTSD. PTSD is best treated by psychiatrists and psychotherapists with special training in this area. Treatment often involves a combination of medication and therapy. Support groups, exercise, and mindfulness practices are also healthy coping strategies. And, as with any sickness, compassion from family and friends is crucial. While the name for this illness may have changed, PTSD has been acknowledged for centuries. If you or someone you know is suffering from PTSD, don't wait. Talk to your doctor, counselor, or spiritual leader. For more information, call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP-4357 or text HELP for you. 435748. Well, thank you to our guests, Matt and Veronica, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about the topic of PTSD and past traumas. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your low school newspaper, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. To say something is skin deep implies a shallowness that fails to recognize the depth of the function and protection that our skin provides. Dermatology 101, next time on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Prairie Doc programs have provided truthful, tested, and timely medical information for 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City and I serve as a board member for the Healing Words Foundation. Please join us as we celebrate this milestone, offering healthcare information in our state and across the region. Rick and Joni Holm began this mission years ago, and every week since then, our Prairie Docs and other medical professionals volunteer many hours to share science-based truth about healthcare on public television, on the radio, in our newspapers, and online. And best of all, everyone has free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. I ask you to consider making a donation. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. Thank you.
Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Dock has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Telecommunications. Communications.